We're in 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you want to open up your Bibles and read along. Now it says in Psalm 91, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. And when you hear about that, you think, well, that's great. Sign me up. I want to be in the secret place of the Lord. That sounds cool. Where is it? We're in 1 Samuel chapter 23. But I, I cheated and went to Psalm 91. Okay, where is the secret place of the Lord? How do I get there? How do I stay there? The answer, it's a secret. <laughs> what? You have to learn this secret. Okay, how do I learn the secret? You have to go through difficult times and lose the support of people around you. Oh, may I pass on that one? You know, you'd, you'd want to be crazy to say, oh, I want to go through difficult times. And yet, that's what you have to do to learn this. It's more important than having a nice, safe life. You think, well, wait a minute. I don't, I don't like pain. I don't know about everybody else. But that's not my favorite. And... I, I need everybody around me to support me. I want to be appreciated and liked. And I want a nice, smooth boat ride. I don't like waves. I just want a nice, smooth life. But here's something more important. And that is learning how to live with God in this life so that no problem moves you. Nothing throws you off, upsets you, wipes you out. You can be faithful to God in every situation so that when you stand before God, he says, well done. Good and faithful servant. So whether David likes it or not, he is about to learn to live in the secret place of the Most High. Now, are you interested in learning how to live in the secret place? I am very interested myself. So here we are in 1 Samuel 23. It says, Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they're robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. 
When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So again, it's really interesting that God does not permit Saul to find David, but other people can. And somehow some messenger gets to David and says, the Philistines are attacking this city called Keilah. And what David does is inquires of the Lord. The explanation of this is in verse six. Abithar the priest, when he fled to David, he brought an ephod with him. It's a priestly garment. Abithar was a priest. And part of the priestly garment is this breastplate that's like a pocket. It's got jewels on the outside, 12 jewels for the tribes of Israel. Inside was what was called the Urim and Thummim, lights and perfections. And beyond that, we don't know what it was. But it was a way of inquiring before God. Some people think it was like casting lots before the Lord and ask a question and get a yes or a no answer. But the answers that David is getting are a little more detailed than yes and no. So we're not quite sure what that was, but that is the method that David is using right now to inquire of the Lord. Now, you know, he had a prophet with him, the prophet Gad. But that's not the method that God is communicating with David with. And so you gotta be open for different ways. That God is not gonna do the same thing every time, like a formula, you gotta stay open and flexible for God to speak to you. Does that make, make sense? So this time David is inquiring of the Lord. And God says, go for it. I want you to save Keilah. But then you notice David's men, they push back. And there are about 600 of them now. There were 400 in the last chapter. So there's more men in debt, discontented, and distressed. There's three Ds. I didn't make that up. I'm not trying to be a hip preacher where everything starts with the same letter. That's kind of... I don't like that. But in this case, it's true, in English. I don't know about Hebrew, Gil. But these guys are in debt, they're discontented, and they're distressed. And they're all joining David. And now he's got 200 more of these guys. And these guys are not too crazy about looking for trouble. Their attitude is, well, that's hard. Keilah's in trouble. We're in trouble too. And we're afraid now. And do we really need to look for more trouble? Is this necessary? And really their idea is, why don't we just look out for ourselves? Huh? So David goes back to the Lord and says, what do you want? What do you want? 
And God says, go down there, deliver them, and I will give you the victory. That's pretty good to know in advance. Hey, guys, let's go take them. We are going to win. That's encouragement, isn't it? Okay. So, this is not about what does David want? What do the men want? This is about what does God want? Let's do that. And so, David and his men go down and they triumph against what I think is a larger force. Because the Philistines came against Keilah, which is a walled city. And so maybe what they're doing is they're besieging the city and starving them out or attacking, but they've got livestock with them. Now, I can't imagine that a band of raiders who hit quickly are going to bring a bunch of cattle with them. You know, why would you want to slow you down? You want to get in there, hit, and then get out, right? So I think it must have been a pretty big force. And yet David and his men go down there, and they hit the Philistines. They lose a lot of men, and David takes away their livestock. Pretty good victory. Now you notice, in verse 7, Saul hears that David has gone to Keilah. There are people who are informing on David's actions. And he thinks this, God has delivered him into my hand. God is helping me, he thinks. Now this is a common thought with people when things go the way they want them to. They think, God is with me. God is approving my path because it's happening just the way I want. God is with me. But that's not how it works. Saul is not with God. So God is not with him. And something might look to go the way he wants it, but you can't depend on that. The only way that you can know that God is with you is if you are with God. And if you live contrary to God, do not expect him to bless you. He doesn't have to. That's why we want to live our lives with him, depending upon him. Then we know God is with me. So now David hears that Saul is coming. And he inquires of the Lord on two points. First of all, Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down? Those are the two things. And God answers the second question first. He will come down. So Saul is going to attack the city. But this is what David inquires on twice. Will the men of Keilah deliver me? After all the good that I have done for the men of Keilah, risking my life, the life of my men, will these guys turn on me and surrender me to Saul? Will they betray me? And God says, yes, they will, if you stay there. And so David knows. We have to leave. And David does escape. Now that's hard, isn't it? Because after all that effort, and remember, all his guys were not crazy about this. They're thinking, great, I'm helping somebody else in trouble, and I'm in trouble myself. 
I don't need this. And yet David says, we are gonna do this for the Lord. They go down there, they save, they help. The men of Kyle are happy, thanks. We're so glad you're here. You guys are the best. And then God says to David, you need to get out of there now. They're gonna turn you over. But this is the discipline about serving the Lord, is that you serve him first. Now David did a good thing for the men of Keilah, but he didn't do it for them, for their approval or their rejection or anything. The reason why he did that is because he's working for God and God says, this is what I want you to do. And that means it doesn't depend on if Keilah thinks he's hot stuff or, oops, David, we don't want to get destroyed by Saul, so we're going to turn you over. Is that okay? That's not why David did it in the first place. And this is about following the Lord. You know, the Lord has you working for him first and your boss second or third or whatever. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 22. He says, bond servants, he might just mean employees there, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ." So whatever you do, you are serving the Lord first. Now he has you working for this person. This person might be unreasonable, harsh, unappreciative, ready to throw you under the bus or under the wheels of the airplane or whatever. And yet, you know, you're not dependent on that person's approval or his displeasure, or whatever, that's where God has you. And you work for him first. I found that it takes all the sting out of it. I've worked for some unreasonable people. I can't remember much because I guess I must not be bitter. (laughs) But again, who are you working for first? The Lord. Now, you work for your boss for the paycheck, but you serve the Lord for the reward of the eternal inheritance. That's what the writer to the Hebrews calls it. The eternal inheritance. And that's why you want to make the Lord happy by making your boss happy. This is a discipline, and even David has to go through this discipline of serving the Lord whether other people appreciate it or not. Look at verse 15. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Interesting in the midst of this where David is focusing on the Lord does not depend on the praises of other people or their 
possible betrayal? Here comes Jonathan to encourage him. And it's not an accident. In Romans 15, Paul says God is the one who gives perseverance and encouragement. That means that God knows the way that he made us. And he knows that we're finite. We're not infinite in our abilities. You know, I, I, I marvel at Direne teaching at the university there, and they're saying, yeah, and you could do this, and you could do that. And it's like, ooh, here's a fresh tube of toothpaste. Let's just take off the lid and start squeezing. Oh, look at it come. Oh, there's lots of toothpaste in here. Let's squeeze them a little harder. <laughs> and see, this is what happens. We're finite, and we don't have infinite courage, infinite heart to keep on going. We give out, and then we become exhausted. You can get exhausted physically. You run out of strength. You need sleep. But you can also get exhausted in your soul. And even though you might be rested, you're weary inside, and it becomes hard to keep going. God knows that we run out of courage and hope and faith. And so he's even designed it that we can get that encouragement that we need. This is part of living in that secret place is it's a source of encouragement. Now, God gives encouragement through people, through his word, and through the truth. That's just what I notice here. He gives encouragement through the truth because it has to be true in order to encourage. If somebody just says, oh well, look up. It's gonna work out fine. My first reaction would be, oh really? How do you know that? Uh, because I read it on the inside of a greeting card? Well, that's encouraging. Thank you, Hallmark. <laughs> uh, is it true? Is it going to happen? How do you know? Well, it has to be true in order to encourage. And God's word is true. That's why it's encouraging. Just like Greg was talking about, that promise is as good as accomplished because God has spoken and it cannot return to him void. You can take that to the bank. It's as good as accomplished. It's true. Now, when God's word, which is true, comes through people, it has the added benefit of love. Because that's what's behind God's encouragement. Because God loves us. And he, he works through people who love us. Isn't that interesting? If it didn't come with love, there's your encouragement, now take it and get out of here. That's encouraging. It's kind of like being in a, a refrigerator. But it comes with love. And love is always encouraging. Haven't you found that? You might be pretty much exhausted, pretty much wiped out, kind of... And somebody comes along and loves you. 
And you go, well, <laughs> that's pretty good. I like that. So imagine being exhausted of love. You also find your hope and your faith pretty wiped out. But what happens when your love is strengthened? When you receive that, then you find your hope and your faith also strengthened. Now Paul says faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest is love. And if you get love, funny enough, your faith and your hope are feeling pretty good about themselves too. That's why love is so important. Now David knows Jonathan loves him. Jonathan has made it clear. Jonathan loves David as he loves his own soul. He gave him his sword, his belt, his cloak. He gave him. He says, I want you to have a covenant with me, a friendship before the Lord. He's done it twice now. David knows that Jonathan knows the God of truth. And Jonathan tells David the truth. And you notice that nowhere does Jonathan ever explain why this is happening. When you encourage somebody, trying to give them a reason, how do we know? I can't explain my life, and only God knows why it's happening the way it's happening. Now we go, why? Why? Why is this happening? If God were to say why, we would go, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense. Why doesn't help. That's why we have to trust God. That he's smarter than us and he knows what he's doing. And he's not about to lose us. He will get us where we need to be. But those steps are ordered of the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? God is acting according to a wisdom that's so far above us. It wouldn't make sense. But it will do exactly what he wants it to do, which is to make us like Christ. That's what's going on here. So Jonathan doesn't talk about why, but he does give the truth. He says, the hand of Saul, my father, is not going to find you because God has called you to be king over Israel and a dead king can't rule. That means you have to make it there because he called you. That means that whatever happens, my father is not going to get you. He's not going to kill you. You're going to make it fine. God knew in advance that Saul wasn't going to get off the throne, that he's going to get paranoid, that he's going to attack David. God knew all these things. And it doesn't matter how many difficulties are out there, how paranoid Saul is, any of that stuff, people informing, let them inform and call out the army and do anything you want. Doesn't matter. God called you to be king of Israel. Nothing can stop that. Is that not true? That's pretty encouraging then. Even my father knows this. Isn't that not crazy? End of verse 17. My father Snow knows that I am going to be your number two guy and I am going to love it. I don't want your job. I want what God wants. And my father knows I'm perfectly happy to be your number two guy. And all David can say is, yeah, you're right. You're right. This is not 
my idea. It's God's idea. I'm not making this happen. He has to make it happen. You're right. I'm not going to trust in anything but God. And that's how you live in the secret place. And here's Jonathan encouraging David. You're right where you need to be. Right there in the truth. So they make a third covenant before the Lord. They're in verse 18. The Lord in their relationship, what a foundation. Who can take all the stress and the problems of a relationship and bear it up and make it firm and stable. That's why they always do this. It's a covenant of the Lord between you and me. That makes a relationship that is stable, strong, can last. That's the kind of relationships you want. That also is encouraging. So, back to real life, verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is David not hiding in the strongholds in the woods in the hill of Hekilah, which is on the south of Yeshimon? They're informing on him. Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there, for I'm told he's very crafty. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Yeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David into the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take him. But a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. So here's betrayal. Ziph, this village is located in Judah. David is from the tribe of Judah. They ought to be buddies and stick together and we're in Judah. You know, we're not in, what's the other tribe? Gryffindor or Slytherin or, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> no, this is the Bible. So they should hang together. They're in Judah. And yet Ziph, all the guys there think this is our big chance to get in good with Saul, get rewards, get all that stuff. So they just say, we got David. And Saul says, keep an eye on him. And they say, yes, we will. We're going to get the whole army. And Saul actually is on one side of the mountain. David's on the other. He sends his forces in two groups. They're going to get David. But just that morning, some Philistine commander put down his coffee and said, you know what? We need to make a hit on Israel. And his second in command says, 
you think that's a good idea, sir? I mean, you know, Keila. <laughs> and the commander goes, yeah, that was hard. But you know, I've been thinking about this all night and I can't get it out of my mind. We need to show Israel who's boss. We need to make a hit. I want you to get the men ready. We're going to ride. Now here's David, you know, thinking this is it. This is it. But unknown to him, God's already been working to move the Philistines, who are no big fans of David, to go make a hit on Israel. Why? So they can send a messenger to Saul at the last second to say, you got to come right now. And Saul goes, oh, and we have to leave right now. Now, this is God. This is God because he is seldom early, but he's never late. Think about this. Me, I want God to save me with a margin. <laughs> I want the enemy to be blown up just after they get out of bed, way before they reach me. But it doesn't work like that, does it? No, you get into a situation and you go, oh God, please help me. And then it gets a little worse and you go, oh God, please help me. And it gets a little worse and now you're yodeling. Oh, please help me. And then God does something. See? And you go, thank you. But that's God. Now, Jonathan said, the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. Wasn't that confirmed? See, God is taking care of David. Now, if God had delayed a little longer, David would have gotten captured, huh? This is a discipline to have to wait for the Lord and keep waiting for him. That means trust. Trust in the Bible and wait are the same thing because I'm waiting, expecting. And this discipline means we learn that we have to keep our nerve up and trust God always. There's never a good time to say, okay, time to freak out now. So now I'm going to roll on the floor and scream because we're going to die. Nope. You have to trust in the Lord only. Now, you know, Saul was in a similar situation. This was the point that he failed at because he was supposed to wait for seven days and then Samuel would come. Now the Philistines are waiting there and the seven days are grinding on and it's the seventh day and where is he? Where is he? You know what? I think I better offer those sacrifices right now. So he offers them up and then Samuel shows up. Saul needed to wait 15 more minutes. If he'd have known Samuel will be here in 15 minutes, he would have said, oh, okay. <laughs> 13 more minutes. But he would have hung on, right? This is the discipline. Can you trust in God? right up to the last second. Now, one of the problems is we don't know where that last second is. Because Mary and Martha had a brother who was sick. 
And they sent word to Jesus and they said, you gotta get here because he's sick. So Jesus waited two more days. And when he got there, Lazarus was dead for four days. And they said, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. How long has he been dead? Four days. Oh, right on time. What do you mean right on time? Roll the rock away. What? It's going to smell. Didn't I say that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then he calls him out of the grave. Seldom early, never late. And the truth is, we don't know where that last second is. So quit looking at your watch. You don't know. It might have to die so that Jesus can raise it from the dead. You don't know. And this is a discipline to learn. That's why you're in the spot that you're in. So that you can know that God is going to help you. He doesn't tell you when. You just have to trust him. That's part of being in the secret place. And that's what God is doing with us, the same as he's doing with David. He's disciplining us to look to him for guidance and for encouragement and for protection and saving. Now this is a secret place and the only way to learn this secret is to learn it with God. He is teaching. Class is in session right now. The Apostle Paul had to learn this. This is what he says in Philippians 4. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have been initiated into the mystery. That's the literal translation of the word he uses. I have been initiated into the mystery, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But he says here, this is not automatic. God didn't say, oh, you're an apostle now, so here's the keys to the executive washroom, and here's the secret of being strengthened in Christ, so everybody looks at you and goes, how does he do it? Paul had to learn it, and you know how he learned it? By going through it. The same as you and me, and the same as David. There is no difference. Now, you know, in this, God is really doing us a favor because what he's doing is he's delivering us from having to depend upon people. And it would be nice if we could depend on people, if they would appreciate our sacrifices for them and if they would pay us back and we could have this sort of give and take and wonderfulness and all. I would like people to understand me and to be there for me. But that's not always the case, is it? And people let us down. And in that, you have to say, oh, you poor person made out of dust. I forgive you and I let you go.
People are as, as unstable as sand. They're nothing to trust in. So God is freeing us up from that. He's also freeing us up from our circumstances. You know, it's nothing to be courageous when everything is calm and peaceful. That's nothing. And if our courage depends on everything being calm and peaceful, good luck. Not on this planet, not in this universe. So the real courage, the only courage, comes from knowing that you're in God's hand and that no one can snatch you out because there is no one greater. It doesn't look like that. It looks like it's open season on Rob. And I am an endangered species. When they get me, that's it. We're dead. But the reality is this. No one can snatch you out of the hand of God. There is no one greater. He will not permit it. So it doesn't matter who's against you. If it's God's will that you live, you will live with him. And if it's his will that you die, you can say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But you are independent of your circumstances. And you know, when you live in God's secret place, you become an encourager. You're kind of freed up from having to have somebody come and hold your hand and say, there, there, dear. It'll be okay, maybe. I mean, it will be okay. I mean it. And what you can do is actually go to somebody else and encourage them. And you think, well, you know, I need the encouragement. But no, you need God. And when you get God, he's going to teach you things. And what you can do is actually look around for somebody else and be aware of this and be that person that encourages and you encourage by loving and by speaking the truth. Isn't that what people need to hear? The stuff that God shows you, the truth, you can give that to somebody else and that will lift them up. And it's a funny way that God works. That is, it is more blessed to give than receive. Myself, I would like all the encouragement in the world. To me, that would be almost enough. But how much greater is it to give and to realize, okay, the both of us are going to make it. You know that when you water, you are watered by God. That's what it says in the proverb. Proverb eleven twenty five. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. It's, it's really fascinating how many people need encouragement and don't get it. There is such a thing as a ministry of mercy and encouragement, and who knows, but you could be one of those people who it is the way God built you that you need to look out for others and, and listen up for who's struggling and then connect that person up with truth that is going to give that person what they need to keep going. Because in reality, everybody needs encouragement. That's the way God made us. And so it's part of this secret place. It's part of dwelling there. It's a 
good place to dwell. Did you know it? That's why you want to be there. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. that there is a secret place and it's close to you. And every blessing and every good thing comes from you. And it's not wrong to want that goodness. That's what you made us for. We thank you that you're good willing to bless. And we want to live in that place. We have this world full of difficulties that we live in. And I know for myself, I don't like the difficulties. I don't like being afraid. I don't like the stress. But I praise you and thank you that you are with us. You're stronger than people. You're wiser than people. And I know that you are seldom early, but you are never late. And you are so faithful and so good that way. Please teach us to live in that secret place and to know the blessedness and be able to give out that blessedness. Help us not to be afraid of a, a difficult life, a hard life, a sad life, a painful life. Help us to have life with you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.